to the most amazing woman on the planet. You probably thought I was going to shamelessly show you a picture of our wedding day and publicly wish my wife a happy anniversary. Or It's one of my favorite pictures. I love you, Athena. Happy anniversary. Um, yeah, I've shown that picture before. It's just one of my favorite pictures that we were coming out. We were so glad the ceremony was over. Um, and uh, yeah, we were legal. So I know we look young there, but uh, it was all legal. Tennessee. <laughs> I think 15 is the legal age. We were a little older than that. Not much, but we were a little older than that. But uh, I, I just, yeah, publicly want to say happy anniversary to my, my wonderful wife, and it's been an awesome, awesome marriage. Um, it's not been a per- perfect marriage. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an awesome marriage, but it takes work. As you guys that are married, you know that. You can attest to that. You know, you have to battle through things. You have to work hard. You have to love. You have to forgive a lot. You have to lay down your life. You have to give grace. You have to work it out. You sometimes have to agree to disagree. But marriage isn't easy, but it's worth it. And I want to talk about marriage today because I want to look at something that I believe that God is saying in our day and age now of even what is, what is it with marriage, this, this institution given to us by God? What is he saying? What were his intentions and so today I want to open my heart up to you and, and talk about this topic. I got my stool because I want it to be a conversation today and I want to encourage dialogue. Instead of just sermonizing, I want to open up a dialogue that I believe that the church needs to get into in a right way, in a right spirit. A lot has happened over the last couple of weeks in our state. Um, there's a lot of passionate opinions um, there's a lot of things flying around, but I want to talk a little bit about that today and, and then just ask this question, how we as a church can engage culture in a godly way, because we can, there is a way. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. My heart today is that we hear from the heart of Jesus, his love for humanity, and so I, I encourage you, as I encourage myself, that we open our hearts to him, let him speak to us, let him challenge the way we think let him challenge how we communicate and how we dialogue, and let him challenge how we relate to others. And I believe that the church has a wonderful opportunity to operate in a different spirit than the world operates in. Paul said this in Romans 12, and, and you'll, I was just meditating on this, but he said, don't conform yourself to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we should not be battling as the world battles, as, as, as we hear uh, Paul talk about the weapons of our warfare and how he talks about uh, spiritual battle. He, he's, he doesn't say that we're battling against people and flesh and blood, and I think it's important that we know that and be reminded of that. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. First of all, we need to understand that God is a, good, is a giver of good gifts. Do you believe that? You believe that he is a giver of good gifts and that he deeply loves us. In context of loving us, he is a giver of good gifts. James 1.17, and start the text out. And, and James says this, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. If you have a good gift in your life, whether that be a person, 
a relationship. That, 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 that is a gift from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And then James says this, who does not change like the shifting shadows. God is a giver of good gifts. And I think that we as people sometimes, and we say that we believe it, and I'm with you, you know, and I say yes and amen, and I hear you say yes, but I think sometimes we have a hard time believing that. And do we believe, you know, and, and we sometimes hear these passages, do we believe what he told Jeremiah? And he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Do we believe that about God for us? Do we believe that he wants the best for us? And then you can make this personal. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants the best for you? That when he looks at you, that he desires the very best for you? And the reason why I'm starting out talking about that is because this idea of marriage, we have to believe in context of what God believes and what he sees, that he is a giver of good gifts. Marriage and sexuality are gifts from God. He didn't have to do it that way. But he chose to do it in the way that he did it. And as believers today, we agree that God is the creator and that marriage and sexuality came from his heart and were his idea. As believers, we do it. Now, this is a different conversation if, if people don't believe in God and they're atheists and they just don't know where they are with God, then, then that's a different conversation. I'm talking today about if we are believers in Christ and we believe that God is our Father and we believe that our Father in heaven is a giver of good gifts and in him there's no shadow of turning, then we have to conclude that he is the one who created marriage and sexuality and it came from his heart and were his idea. And so I want to begin today by looking at God and marriage and we're going to move on from there. The original blueprint and intentions on marriage. So we're going to look at God and marriage, God's blueprint and design from Genesis 2, 18, 20 through 24. Um, and so it'll be up there on the screen for you, all these passages. But let's, let's, let's uh, look at this together. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And all the men said, amen. You better say it a little louder, husbands. That's what I'm and he says this, I will make a, a helper that is suitable for him. Talk about that in a minute. Verse 20. And so he kind of gives other passages. But then, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And he, while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. And you ever wonder about that? Like, you know, why that? Why didn't he take, like, something, you know, part of the femur? I, I don't, you know, I mean, why the rib, you know? And there's many discussions. There was a cool little email about that it'd be close to the man's side. You know, I'm, that's sweet. It's not biblical, but it's sweet. Um, we'll go with that. <clears throat> Then the Lord God, verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That was a good day for Adam. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why, and here it is, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and he is united to his wife and they become one flesh. He's united to his wife and they became 
become one flesh. In this passage, you see God's original plan for marriage and sexuality at the very beginning. It's like a blueprint. It's like drawing up plans, and God says, I'm the creator of it. He's the father who gives good gifts, and he lays out this plan, if you will, and I know he didn't lay it out on his table and look at it, but the, if, you, if, you could just, if you're visual like me and, and you think about him saying, okay, marriage and sexuality, this is what it's going to look like. He could have done it any other way. He did it this way. And it's interesting that he says about Adam, he said, no suitable helper was, was for the man. And, and what he's talking about, suitable, it means ideal, the ideal partner. This is not just physically, this is physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Different yet complementary. If you've been around the opposite sex long enough, you'll, 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 one of the greatest revelations you get, or you should get, is they're not like you. Hello? Yeah, amen. There's the obvious difference, but there's also emotional differences. There's personality differences perspective, as we heard earlier, perspective differences between male and female. And so God looks at man and he said there was no suitable helper for him. And, and so he said, I, there needs to be an ideal for the man. A helper that will be his complement. It will be different yet complementary in physical, spiritual, and emotional. In other words, different but working together like a plan should come together and that's why in marriage you know the difficulties that we face in marriage and some of the you know marital counseling or premarital counseling you know uh, we talk a lot about that is because the differences can create clash but they can also if we figure out the perspective that our spouse sees things it can be a, such a great complement and, and 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 such a unity and team and that's God's intention. And so this different yet complementary, the ability to reproduce and also give the right balance to a home and children. The value of what each brings to the relationship and to the family. God set this blueprint into motion. And this is how he set it up, even in the home where you know, the mom being the nurturer and the dad seeing from a different perspective and the way they flow in the home. That's how God set it up. So this is at the very beginning, Genesis 2. God does this. He lays the blueprint out and he begins this thing. So what happened? Here's what happened. Genesis 3 happened. Genesis 3 happened. It was sin came into the world. God in his mercy and his sovereignty did not want robotic people that would just follow him out of, that's what we have to do. So he gives this gift to humanity, and he gives humanity two gifts, free will and stewardship, free will and management. And so sin comes in. Sin can, really we can boil it down to this, it's simply mishandling or abusing what God has given God gives, man mishandles it. That's what stewardship is. Stewardship, when we think of stewardship, immediately our mind goes to money. Money is one component of stewardship. Stewardship is management, not ownership. We need to understand that. We're called to be stewards, not owners. 
And so when we look at God's blueprint and his intentions for things and he gives us gifts, he's saying, I want you to manage this. You don't own it. You only manage it. And so what happens is sin comes in and what we do is we take what God has given us and we say, no, God, I can do a better job owning this than you. I don't want to be a manager. I want to be the owner. So a lot of times sin boils down to control in our lives. We will take control. We will take the driver's seat. You know, the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Remember that one? And they finally got smart and said, no, if, I, if, if God's my co-pilot, this plane's going down. God needs to be driving. And so this is the major problem with all of humanity. We get off track when we assume ownership of what God has given us. We're managers, not owners. It's abusing gifts. My favorite car, if you guys are looking for an anniversary present, is a Porsche. And I'm not talking about a Hot Wheels. I want the real thing. Somebody one time heard me say that, and they got me a little car, like a little Porsche. And it was very nice of them, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's my dream car. You know, people that like cars and stuff, you have your own dream car, that's great. Porsche is my dream car. I would love to have a Porsche. I'll probably never have one. If they have cars in heaven, maybe I'll have one there. I have a feeling, though, I, we're not going to care about cars in heaven. Um, but imagine you guys all pulling your money together and giving me a Porsche for my anniversary. That would be really nice, by the way. It'd be an amazing gift that you gave me. But as you look at a Porsche, you look at other sports cars, there's a way that that needs to be driven and a way that it doesn't need to be driven. A Porsche was meant for the road. It was meant for the open road. It's meant for... Driving fast, Doug, forgive me, I just said that. But uh. Now, what if I took that Porsche and I just started going where the four-wheelers go and I started going off-road with this thing and driving as fast as I could? You all would be very upset with me that I was abusing your gift in that way. Because there's a place, there is a parameter in which a Porsche can go. When God gives gifts to his children, not out of shame and not out of killing our joy, but he said there are parameters in which I want you to enjoy these gifts. Now, going back, remember the verse I started out with, that, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Remember that. And you guys get it when, you, when, you, when we deal with kids especially, and, and, and sometimes a kid, you give them a gift, and they don't quite understand, and it's like, no, no, don't take the remote control of the new game system I give you, and don't throw it across the room, because I don't want to have to buy you a new one. And there's parameters, in, and then you say, I want you to enjoy the gift. It's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking it from your hands and keeping you from throwing it, because I want to take away your joy of throwing it against the wall. But I want you to know that there's a right way to do this because I love you. And that's the way God looks at the gifts that he gives us. And in this place where he says, now, now listen, I, I, I'm, I am the owner, you are the manager. And there's a right way to handle this thing. Imagine, if you will, if, if I can go a step further, that you own a store or I own a store. Pick whatever you want, yet you're selling your favorite thing, but... You're the manager, and, and uh, did I say you own it? Rewind that. God owns the store, and he's letting you manage it. You're the manager of the store. 
And then you go into this store and you begin to go, well, I don't like this product. We're going to get rid of that and we're going to start rearranging things how I want. And we're going to, I know the owner has given me the blueprints and he says that he wants this and this to happen. He's given me the mission statement in which the store should run. He's given me a list of products that he wants to run. And, and I go into the store as the manager and what I do is assume ownership and I start changing all of that and scratch this. I don't want to do it this way. I, the owner comes and he says, what, what are you doing here? You're, you are the manager, not the owner. And so all of humanity has this problem. And it's called sin and it's called abusing our management abilities. And we are taking God's gifts and what we are doing is taking ownership of them. We don't get to say how things should be run. Our job is to manage faithfully that which the owner has entrusted to us. That is why Jesus in kingdom parables in the New Testament, what does he say? He said, you know, the judgment of the kingdom is going to be what? Good and faithful what? Servant. That's manager. And he says, remember, he gives those several kingdom illustrations and parables and he says you know there were three servants and they were given and trusted these things and then he says that one did this and the one did this and the one mishandled it and he says I'm going to come in the and the owner the king will come and he's going to give an account and say what did you do with what I gave you and so our the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ the the great white throne of judgment will be a stewardship judgment what did you do with what I gave to you and we want to hear good and faithful servants and so the problem in marriage and sexuality and this gift that God gave to humanity is man took ownership and immorality ensued. You see, even biblical people, that's why when I hear we need to go back to a biblical definition of marriage, I'm talking about no way. We need to go back to God's definition of marriage. People in the Bible messed it up really bad. You saw... Immorality happened when man took ownership. You have multiple wives in the Old Testament. Jacob, remember the whole deal with Rachel and Leah. You had sexual promiscuity. You had adultery. You had fornication. You had lust. You had homosexuality. You had mistreatment and degrading of women. The women were treated as a part of property. Well, that was never God's intention. So these folks blew it. They took ownership and immorality happened. And we say in there, we can look at the Bible and God did work with some of that and he redeemed some of it, but it was never his best. It was never his intentions. And so we see dysfunction play out in the Bible. David, considered the godliest man in the, in the Old Testament. And the whole deal with Bathsheba, an adulterous relationship and having her husband killed. We have Solomon, who was considered the wisest man in the Bible. And what was his downfall? What was his downfall? Women. 1,000 women at his disposal. That's, that's called sexual immorality. That's a problem. Samson, who is considered the strongest man in the Bible. Women. And so we have to go back to God's definition. And so God worked in and through the mess that was made, but it wasn't his best. And so let's fast forward. So we have all this problem in the Old Testament. We have 
lot of sexual immorality, but what about Jesus and marriage? Jesus and marriage. What was his perspective on marriage and sexuality? Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him as they regularly did. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? The creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the Pharisees are challenging him on divorce. What does Jesus go back to with marriage? Does that sound familiar? He quotes Genesis 2.24. He goes back to God's original intent and design. He reiterates the blueprint. And he says, the creator, not man, because, you know, I'm sure the Pharisees, they, they, they look at the history and they go, you know, there was a lot of messed up stuff and sexual immorality that was happening. And Jesus, what do you think about divorce and that? Is there any reason? And, and Jesus says, the creator made the male and female. Let's go back to God's intentions here. He then says something on the tail end of what he, he quotes Genesis 2.24, he says, you know, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. So then he follows it up by saying this, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so this is a statement on divorce, but he's also making a statement that God is the only one who defines marriage, not man. He made them male and female, and what he joins together, let no one separate. Let no one mishandle. Let no one try to redefine this thing. It is God as the creator of marriage, the one who determines what that looks like. Again, here's the blueprint. A man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sexuality, the indication is sexuality. So Jesus says it, but we don't have the new covenant yet. This is just Jesus. Jesus has not, you know, he, he, he was crucified, rose from the dead. But now we go into the new covenant. And so what does Paul say about it? Let's look at Jesus and the new covenant, the new covenant in marriage from Ephesians 5. Isn't it interesting that Paul wrote about marriage and sexuality and he was single? You know he had to be under divine inspiration to do that. Because the guys are like, Paul, you don't know anything, man. You, you haven't been married. And the women are like, why is this guy telling us about marriage? But you know what? He wrote under the inspiration. He could write it from an objective point of view. And so he writes about marriage and sexuality, Ephesians 5. Now I want you to hear even further of what Paul is saying and where you get the heartbeat of what God is saying, even in the point of value of women. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, let that sink in for just a couple of seconds. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. So he goes from talking about marriage and he goes into the church, but holy and blameless. 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for the body, just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. And then listen to what he says in verse 31. Does this sound familiar? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says something very interesting. This is a profound mystery. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So in the New Covenant, Paul reiterates the original blueprint, again, on marriage and sexuality. God created it. Man then sinned and took ownership of it. Christ came and reinstated it, and now Paul does too. This is God's plan for marriage. But listen to what he also says. He speaks something that was even radical of the day. You're talking about first century Middle East. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church and laid his life down for her. And, you know, you have that passage where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, and guys like that one. But we always say in our premarital counseling, it says, yeah, wives have to submit to their husbands. Men have to die. Who gets the better end of that deal? And all the ladies said, amen. But something interesting about this passage that Paul says, you know, he, he's talking about marriage. He reinstitutes and reinstates the, the blueprint for marriage. But then he says, this is a profound mystery. What he says is marriage has always been about Jesus. Marriage is the story of Jesus. Marriage represents the gospel. Marriage points us to the gospel. Because one of the names of Jesus is the bridegroom. And the church is called the bride. And guys, don't get weirded out by that. That's not a male-female thing there. That's, that's a positional or role thing that Christ is called the bridegroom. The church is called the bride. And out of love, he gave himself up for her. And he said, this is how much I love you. I will go to the cross for you. I'll lay down my life for your hand. The cross was the greatest proposal of all time. Will you be mine? And I'll give my life. But Jesus, as the bridegroom, so the church, I mean, the church in Christ, and uh, marriage has always been about Jesus. And that's why it is still God's original blueprint, and it's still good for today. Marriage reveals the gospel. Marriage and sexuality are gifts from God that we are to manage as everything else God has entrusted to us. And sin ensues is when we take ownership and we make the rules. And so marriage is about the gospel. Even when God, at the very beginning, he knew that men would sin and that he would send Jesus as the bridegroom, the redeemer. So what's the problem today? In our day, we still have sexual immorality. We still have man taking ownership instead of management. This, again, is sin, not just the area of sexuality. This is the problem with sin, is, God, we can do a better job than you owning this, and so we stop managing and we start owning. And so today we still have sexual immorality. What does Paul say about this? Let's go to the next 
side. So man is still taking ownership in this area instead of management, stewardship. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, this whole passage, Paul deals with the idea of sexual immorality, but not just that. But he says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Then what does he say? You are not your own. But you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You are not your own. You're not the owner. You're the manager. And as soon as we understand that in every area of life, again, I'm not just talking about sexual immorality and and the area of sexuality. I'm talking about every area of life. We are not the owner. God is. And God is saying this. Paul is saying this. You don't own your body. You're a manager of your body. So here's the sobering and challenging news. The church must accept its own responsibility. You know, it's easy for us to look at the gay community with a condemning eye and not look at our own sin. I want to just be very real and very honest and very relational with you today. It's very easy for us to look at them with a condemning eye, and it it happens all over the place. And that's why we have this fever pitch of hot topic and dialogue and, and I mean it, it's 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 a it's at a fever pitch right now not just in our state but in our nation and it's easy to look at them and what they need to do but I think that we need to look at our own sin and we need to recognize that we have a responsibility the gay community has called us out And I've seen some interviews, but they said, you speak out against us. You're speaking out against gay marriage. Are, are you displaying and defining what a good marriage is? So we're supposed to look at the church and see that as, as the healthy way of doing things. And they're calling us out, and they're quoting the numbers. And they're, they said, lust among churchmen is, churchmen is rampant. Six out of ten Christian men regularly view pornography. Infidelity and fornication is widespread among Christians. Ministers continue to fall to immorality. And they look with a defensive eye saying, but you guys are telling us that's the right way to do it? That's the holy way to do it? And so in a lot of ways, the church has lost its platform to speak. Because here also we must say, when we talk about God's definition of marriage and the blueprint, we must be careful that we don't miss what sexual immorality is. And I like to say this because I'm guilty of this. You know what we consider a big sin? The one I'm not struggling with. Isn't that true? Sexual immorality is this, it's anything that goes against God's original plan for sexuality of one man, one woman in the confines of marriage, giving themselves completely to each other. That was his plan. He is a giver of good gifts. So it's also easy for us to classify sin. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 and back up. This is the same passage. Let's look at 7 through 11. 
He's talking about lawsuits among believers. Now, you've got to understand, he's talking to the church here, Paul is. He's not, he, when he says flea and sexual immorality, he's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, we talked about what that means, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul even says in other passages, in other books, he talks about gossip. He talks about unforgiveness. He talks about slander. He talks about greed. He talks about disunity being things that will keep you from the kingdom. And so we have to, as the church, take a sobering look at this thing and say, what should our response be? What should our response be? Let's go to the next slide. The church's response. Humility and repentance. We need to look at our own hearts and we need to get right with God. We need to walk humbly before the Lord. We need to stop classifying sin and repent of the sin in our own lives. What should the response be of the church in this hour? What does God say about revival and the healing of the land? And this is a passage we all love to quote, but we better Etch what God is saying into our hearts and our minds. And he says this, 2 Chronicles 7.14. This has been used for revival passages and the healing of our land. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How do we get our land healed? Notice God does not say, if those people. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, the people that belong to me, my children, they need to humble themselves and they need to pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What the church has done is we're trying to get everybody else to turn from their wicked ways and we're saying, if those people, and we fight these battles on the wrong battlefields. We try to get it into the political sphere. It's not going to work. If my people, that's you and me. And so we've looked at the wrong solution for too long. But we will make the greatest impact by repenting of our sin and revealing Christ. So what should our response be? Number two up there, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. We're called to be like him. And so let's look at Jesus for a moment in the Gospels. He had an amazing ability, and I think that this is, should bring such challenge and conviction, but hope to us. He had such an amazing, amazing ability to love and value people without condoning their sin, didn't he? It was, it was absolutely astounding of the people that wanted to be around him. He built relationships with lost people. Where do we find him in the Gospels? Around cheaters. He around the sexually immoral. And it was rampant in that day. If you look at the history of Rome in the first century, 
Sexual immorality was rampant in that time. And so it was around Jesus. He was around the downcast. And so all over the place in the Gospels, you see him engaging these people, and you, what do we see the religious people doing? They're offended with him. Why is he eating with those people? If he knew what type of woman that was, he would not be letting her do that. And you hear it over and over and over again from the religious people. But he didn't sermonize them or Facebook how bad their lifestyle was. Not that he had Facebook, but he wouldn't. He didn't hold up signs or accuse them and that they were tearing apart the foundation of society. He didn't hold marches against the Roman Empire who were the controlling power of the day. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So I'm not going to fight in an earthly kingdom. He is the king of a kingdom, and we are a part of that kingdom. But he had relationships with people. He talked with them. He had meals with them. All without condoning their sin. Don't get me wrong. He was able to do it without saying, it's okay what you're doing. It was an amazing ability. Because where do you see those people in the Gospels? Were they not clamoring to get near him? And he wasn't going to tell them. He wasn't going to pat them on the back and say, you know, what you're doing is okay by me. I mean, he said it himself when he was teaching the Pharisees. He said, here... In the area of sexual immorality, here's the plan. Here's God's blueprint. And he dealt with some sexually immoral people. The woman at the well, remember that? She was sexually immoral. She was a woman. And here's Jesus having a conversation with her. And he changes her life forever. And she goes and tells the whole community. And the whole community come out and come to know Christ as Savior and Redeemer. He had this ability. You see him in Matthew's house and people would clamor, the broken, the downcast, the sexually immoral. They wanted to be near him. Remember the woman caught in adultery. What did he say to her? I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. In other words, he said, I, don't, I didn't come to condemn the world. He said that in John three seventeen. But what he's saying is, If you keep doing what you're doing, if you keep taking ownership, what you will do is you forfeit the gift that God has for you and you will stand condemned by taking ownership. And he loved this woman enough and then he said, go and sin no more. There's freedom. And I imagine that his heart, you know, every good and perfect gift, lady, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. If you knew what God had for you, that's what he said to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift that God had for you, you would turn around completely. And so he was able to relate with them without condoning their sin. And I'm thinking, dear God in heaven, help us to get that. Help us to understand what that looks like. Help us to have relationships with people and have healthy and dialogue with people to be able to talk and be able to love them, be able to disagree without being hateful, because we can. I mean, that's marriage and family, isn't it? Do you agree with everybody in your family all the time? Do you have disputes? Do you have arguments? 
Are we the only family that does that? But what you do is at some point, and, and the, the, the goal is, is that I can value you over the argument, but we can work this out and, and, and love each other. And that's how we should approach the world, is to have dialogue and conversation and not be afraid of that. And to love them and say, I, I don't agree, but I love you. I believe God has something better, but I love you as a person, as a human being created in the image of God. Because I'm very convicted when I read the Gospels and those people were drawn to him, yet they seemed to run from us. They seemed to run from the church. They felt his love. And I'm thinking, God, how, help us to know what that looks like. And I think it begins with us taking ownership of our own sin because we're all sinners. That one passage there in 1 Corinthians 6 is says, and, and, and that is what some of you were. Remember when he gives the list? He said, and that is what some of you were. Hey, Corinthians, don't get so prideful and don't start pointing your fingers and start judging other people. And all that stuff that I listed, th that was what some of you were. But now you've been redeemed by the gospel of Christ. Don't forget that you were sinners saved by grace. And I think that that's what the church has to do is say, God, forgive my own sin when I get off track because there are times as a Christian, as a pastor, <gasps> the collective gasp, get, uh, and I take ownership from God in areas and then I have to repent and say, God, I, I, I was, I, I'm so sorry, I need to humble myself. And that's why God said that if you want me to heal the land, my people need to humble themselves and repent. That will speak volumes to the world. And it's not about us achieving a perfected state. It's us humbling ourselves and saying, we blow it too. We need Jesus too because it's about the gospel and we all need Christ desperately. And we have to look at our own hearts. And in a very practical sense, when we reveal the gospel to others, what Paul says is the mystery of marriage is we reveal the gospel in our own marriage. And so one, one of the greatest ways that I can reveal God's plan for marriage is how do I love my wife? How do I love her? And so we need not, in that area, we need not argue about marriage definition, but we should be living out marriage demonstration to the world. Again, that doesn't mean that, oh, Bruce is a perfect husband. Far from it. But one way I can lay down my life for my wife is that when I do blow it, that I tell her, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And the world begins to see reconciliation. And that's why they will, they will know that we, were, we are Christians by our what? our love, our unity. When they come in our, our, our midst, and I, what, what, I want them to be drawn to Christ like they were drawn to him in the gospel. I want them to be, run in here thinking, I want to know what you got. You guys treat me well. You treat me with love. And we can treat them with love without condoning their sins. And they come in in there and they find unity. They find love. They find us as even the church that says, we don't agree on everything, but we love each other. My wife and I don't agree on each other, with each other on everything, but we love each other. I blow it lots. And will they see reconciliation and restoration taking place? That's the thing. It's not saying let's put on a facade and act like perfect people that have it all together. That's actually the opposite. That's what the Pharisees did. 
But then they see and they go, what, what's, what's the secret of great marriage after 23 years? I can tell you, forgiving a lot and forgiving some more and not taking offense and forgiving again and saying I'm sorry and repenting. And then the world says, oh, that's the gospel. That's Jesus. God help us. So what is God speaking to us in this day and age, in this hot topic issue? I think a couple things. He's saying humble yourself, repent, study and be like Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you power to be like him. And live in a different kingdom. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. And so we need to, as the church, say, you know what? Our kingdom is not of this world. That's why we don't have to get stressed out about the things that go on in the world. We just keep shining the light and working while it's still day. And keep on loving Jesus and loving people and loving Jesus and loving people. Because we can then say, when they go, well, what, what about this? And what? Our kingdom's not of this world. We live in a different kingdom. And we need to hear God say to us, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and then I'll heal their land. Let's stand. Jesus, we love you so much. We honor you. We bless you. We praise you. You are good. You do all things well. Every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. And Lord, today, as the church, we humble ourselves before you to say, God, we've, we've, we've blown it in a lot of ways. Lord, forgive us as the church when we have taken ownership instead of managing faithfully that which you've given us. Forgive us, Lord, when we have not represented the gospel and how we treat each other. God, may we humble ourselves and seek your face, turn from our wicked ways, and allow you to heal our land. God, I pray that, Lord, we would have the spirit of Christ in us, that we would be able to engage culture in a loving way, Lord, to, that says you are valuable because you're made in the image of God. You are a creation of God. And, and being able to have that balance as Jesus as you did to be able to love and, 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 and maybe not agree. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would remember that you are the designer, you are the creator of marriage and of sexuality. Lord, you began it. Jesus, you confirmed it. And then, Lord, through the writing of Paul in the New Covenant, you confirmed it yet again that that's the way you see it. God, help us to honor you in every area of our lives. We love you. We praise you. And let us go out as the church to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful week.